This is Cardinal Francis George, and I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Father Barron will challenge us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the One who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents the Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, as we all know, this has been a horrible week. On the day of the attacks in New York and Washington, I felt a quality of fear that I think I've never really experienced before. A fear that wasn't so much personal as though I were in danger directly but a much more generalized fear for the country and fear for the world that we're in, how deeply vulnerable all of us are. It was real personal for me, too, because just about four days before the attacks in New York, I had been in New York. I'd given a talk to the priests of the Brooklyn Diocese, and I'd flown into LaGuardia, and we came right up Manhattan Island. And I remember looking out the window. It was a beautiful sunny day like yesterday or like the day of the attacks was. And I saw all the buildings in, in New York and remarked, of course, the World Trade Center. So just to know that a matter of, of days before the attacks, I was there, I think increased that sense of, of fear. A lot of people, as you know, have compared now September the 11th, 2001 to November 22nd, 1963 or to December the 7th, 1941, these days that both shock us and unite us as a country, days that certainly we won't forget. We'll always remember where we were when we heard and all of that. What do we do? What do we say? What's our response to this as believers? You know, in many ways, I think, especially now in the immediate wake of these tragedies, the best thing we can do is to rest in the silence of prayer. Do you remember in the book of Job, after Job has endured all of his terrible losses and tragedies, his friends come and they sit with him in silence for seven days and seven nights in a kind of prayerful solidarity, feeling their loss. I think in many ways that's the best thing we can do now, precisely as believers, is to rest in the silence of prayer for all these people, those on the plains, those who were killed on the ground, those in the Pentagon, all those, including all of us, affected by it physically, emotionally, prayer, silence, solidarity. But we're also a religion of the Word. We believe that in Jesus, God's Word became flesh. God spoke to us the deepest truths about himself and about us and about the world. Therefore, as a religion of the word, we have to speak. And our revelation says something. So as we emerge from the silence of solidarity and prayer, what words can we bring to an event even as senseless and violent as this? I want to say just four very simple things. First of all, in an event like this, we are face-to-face -face with what the theologians and spiritual teachers call the mysterium iniquitatis, the mystery of wickedness. 
This is undoubtedly for me, I'm 41 years old, the most evil, wicked act that I've witnessed. Those who are older than I remember, of course, other wicked acts, the Holocaust of Hitler, most obviously. But I think for me, yesterday was the most wicked set of, of acts, using innocent lives to take perhaps tens of thousands of other innocent lives. There's something that's just terribly black and twisted and dark about this. The Bible tells us that we are made in the image and likeness of God, we human beings, with our intellect, our will, our creativity, our imagination, our powers. We're made in the image and likeness of God, and we are invited into friendship with God to live the very life of God. All that's true, but the Bible also says very clearly that there is the fact of the fall. There is a corruption in us because of sin that has darkened our minds. Yes, these minds that are meant to be godlike in their powers, that has twisted and warped the will, that's bedeviled our imagination, that has limited our powers. The doctrine of the fall says that though we are in the image and likeness of God, we are seriously compromised. We see in events like those in the past week clear, uncontrovertible evidence of this fall, this corruption. Whenever we are tempted to say, and I know for the past, oh, 200 years, politicians and social theorists and psychologists have sometimes suggested to us that deep down all is well with us if we just change this political situation and we change this psychological situation, all will be well. Christians, whenever we are tempted to believe that, we are reminded of the mysterium iniquitatis, the fact of sin, dark, dastardly. I'm not okay and neither are you. Just to twist that famous book from the 70s, I'm okay, you're okay. We Christians know that's not the case. We also see, I think, the tangled web of sin. Now, again, I'm taping these words just the day after the attack, so there's an awful lot we don't know. But if we assume that somehow these attacks came from the conflict in the Middle East, let your imagination drift back over the past, oh, what is it, 60 years. All those years of conflict, of retribution, of violence, of tit for tat. And then let them drift back even further to Hitler's Holocaust and to his genocide, which in, in many ways prompted the events. Then go back further into the long histories of anti-Semitism. My point is, sin is like a tangled web. Sin is like a fungus. You know, it grows, it grows on itself. Whenever we're tempted to underestimate the power of sin, events like this remind us that it's very real and exists in some ways in all of us. Second thing I think we can realize from these events, we have here below no lasting city. The Bible rings out that message from beginning to end. We have here no lasting city. Our eyes are fixed finally on a city and a realm and a world beyond this one. Whenever we are tempted to rest complacently here in our achievements, 
financial, political, cultural, and otherwise, we have put ourselves in serious spiritual danger. I thought of this, friends, when I watched with all of you over and over again those terrible pictures of those World Trade Centers collapsing. In the greatest city in the world, you know, the Pope is called New York the capital of the world. He's not far from wrong. The most powerful city in the world. And here are its tallest and mightiest and most impressive buildings, right in the heart of the financial district, in the heart of its political power. And there to watch those buildings just collapsing on themselves in a matter of seconds. Well, I was put in mind of the biblical scenes of the destruction of the temple. We have here no lasting city. Our eyes are fixed on a city beyond this one. And though those buildings came down in such a terrible and tragic and deeply evil way, it's also an odd reminder to us that we look elsewhere for our final security. A third mystery, I think, we deal with in the wake of this tragedy. The mystery of salvation. The readings for this Sunday are actually wonderful in their own way. Jesus says in his famous parable, What shepherd would not abandon the 99 sheep who are safe on the hillside and go in search of the one who is lost? Well, I mean, the obvious answer is no shepherd would do that. That's a crazy shepherd who'd risk the 99 safe to go in search of the one. Even if he found it, there's a good chance that the 99 had wandered away. It's an odd statement. What shepherd among you wouldn't do this? Well, hardly any of them would. Jesus' point is, but the good shepherd does precisely that. Searches out the one who is lost, has wandered from the sheepfold, who's wandered from the straight path. And when he finds him, Jesus says, he puts him on his shoulders and with great rejoicing brings him back. What woman among you, having lost a coin, wouldn't turn the house upside down, sweeping it out carefully to find that lost coin? And then when she finds it, throw a party for her friends to celebrate. Well, again, the obvious answer is, I can't think of anyone who would do that, who would waste her time on one lost coin, would throw a party that obviously cost much more than the coin was worth. This is a ludicrous piece of behavior. The point again is, but this is what God is like. Searching out, yes, even the smallest, most lost coin, even the smallest and most lost of sinners, before he tells those parables, we are told that Jesus associated with prostitutes and tax collectors. You know, because we've heard that story so often, we've, we've lost the power of this. In fact, we tend to think of these prostitutes and tax collectors as the good guys, and in fact, the Pharisees as the bad guys. Well, in Jesus' time, of course, it was precisely the opposite. Pharisees were upright, law-abiding, God-fearing people. They were the, the cream of the society. Prostitutes and tax collectors, well, they were the worst of the worst. Tax collectors were like collaborators during the Nazi period. You know, these are, are Jews, but who are collaborating with the, the, the Romans and extracting from the people these terrible taxes. That Jesus associated with them, well, it, it was a shock to the people of Jesus' time. What if we were to translate this parable? And Jesus associated, yes, even with terrorists. 
Now I think some of the shock value of it hits us. Jesus associated with those people? I've just described the mystery of iniquity, the mystery of wickedness. Yes, yes, it is terribly black. And with terrorists, Jesus would associate. Does it mean he condones it? Of course not. But it does mean he searches out, yes, even the worst of sinners. As the shepherd searches out the one lost sheep, as the woman searches for the lost coin. The mystery of salvation is that we have a God who goes into those darkest and most lost places. A fourth and final mystery, the toughest, the one that I'm wrestling with the most this morning, I know all of you are, the mystery of forgiveness. Lord, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? Peter asked Jesus, seven times as many as that? And Jesus responds, no, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times, seven times, meaning never stop forgiving. Forgiving is simply a way of life for the follower of Jesus. And when Jesus is dying on his cross, the victim of the worst injustice in human history, putting to death the Son of God, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Christians, I know it's difficult. Whenever we've been hurt, even just in a personal way, how difficult it is to forgive. Now that we as a country have been so dreadfully hurt, I know, I know that feeling, that need for retribution. But the Christian response has to be the cycle of violence is broken only by forgiveness doesn't mean turning our back on evil. doesn't mean denying it. doesn't mean trifling with it, playing with it. Of course not. That first mystery remains. We know the black heart of evil. But at the same time, because the Son of God, in his moment of evil, his moment of confrontation with it, forgave. So we must forgive. So let's pray in compassion for the victims. Let's pray in compassion for the victimizers and pray for our ability to forgive. God bless. I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you. To purchase copies of the word on fire, call 847-297-4360. That's 847-297-4360.